I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. We're back with the second part of our interview with Alina Chan. Part one looked at whether the virus that causes COVID-19 came from nature or was it the result of a lab leak. In this episode, Solutions. What should happen next? Stopping the next pandemic. Alina Chan. We're all in this together. I don't know how else to say it. Like, let's all change together. It's it's not about holding one country accountable because we're all accountable for this. Just leave some room for I don't know. As a scientist, you're allowed to tell people I don't know yet, but we're working on getting that answer. Our show is about fixes. Yeah, how to make the world a better place. How How do do we we fix fix it? it? How do we fix it? Last week, Dr. Alina Chan, a genetics researcher at the Harvard-MIT Broad Institute, walked us through the source of the COVID-19 virus. It's a complicated story, a whodunit, or perhaps a whatdunit, an unsolved mystery. Part one of our discussion focused on the possibility of a leak from the Wuhan Institute of Virology, or perhaps someplace else. Nothing has been confirmed, but Dr. Chan and others think that the evidence points in the direction of something related to lab research. She also explained how some of our leading public health institutions and even some scientists withheld information that would have been useful in investigating that question. The lack of transparency on this whole issue has been actually quite shocking. Today's episode moves on to solutions. How do we bring more openness and transparency to virology research? Can we be better prepared for the next time a mysterious virus emerges? Later, Jim and I will share some of our ideas. Alina Chan is the co-author of the new book, Viral, The Search for the Origin of COVID-19, She wrote it with the British science writer Matt Ridley, who has been a past guest on this podcast. In part two of our interview, Jim kicks off with a question about Alina Chan's decision to become a whistleblower. In March of last year, she started asking questions about the origins of the virus that had spread from China. What if it had not simply jumped from animals to humans, as was widely assumed at the time, but was the result of extensive genetic engineering? Talk like that could get her into trouble. You are a postdoc, which means you haven't yet moved into sort of a secure long-term position in your field, whether it's at a university or a research institute or something like that. 
Were you worried as a leading voice for asking these questions that you were challenging some of the top people in your field? I mean, these people could wreck your career. So the thing is, I'm not actually squarely in the field of virology. Otherwise, I wouldn't have, I think, 100 times the fear. <laughs> so uh, I, I do have some fear even now, but I have to admit that it could be worse. So I really do appreciate the people who are actually in that field who have stood up and said, actually, it could have come from a lab. And I'd like to point out that in the past year and a half, things have changed a lot, right? We saw a lot more top virologists standing up and saying, actually, we can't tell whether this is from nature or from a lab. We need to investigate both options. So we have someone like David Baltimore, absolutely world-renowned virologist, Nobel Prize laureate, saying that we have to investigate the possibility that uh, this virus was genetically modified. We have virologists in the US who, who personally inserted, uh, who made similar genetic modifications in the SARS-1 virus to, to the feature that we see in SARS-CoV-2 today. They said that there's no way to tell just from the sequence alone whether or not this has been modified by humans. So I think it takes a lot of guts to just, even if you're an established scientist, just to go against the so-called consensus that has developed over the past year and say, no, I don't agree with this consensus. We need to take this very seriously and, and use the scientific method to determine, to guess which is more likely. It seems like there's been a real lack of transparency and of honesty about the need to find out the origins of SARS-CoV-2 uh, without fear or favor. Would you hope that our leading scientists should have responded in, in a more honest, clear manner about various possibilities, including something that would really embarrass China? So I, I want to impress that this problem only implicates a very small group of scientists. <laughs> most scientists don't work on viruses, and most viruses don't infect humans. So we're talking about a very extremely small handful of scientists who are tapped in into this topic, like who, who know a lot about the type of pathogen research that's happening worldwide. Unfortunately, for some reason or other, they haven't been transparent or forthcoming about their, their thoughts, about what they know about the research that was happening in Wuhan. In, in some cases, they, they had the best intentions. They just didn't think the public could handle this kind of revelation that a, a pandemic could start from a lab. So they might have thought it's better just to, just to tell everyone this, this is from wildlife again. I'd say that sometimes scientists can withhold information with good intentions, but I think we should learn from this lesson not to do that again, because it really undermines public trust, because it, it makes people think that scientists can be honest, um, when actually this is just a very small group of scientists. I want to emphasize that I'm a scientist. <laughs> there, there's so many scientists, and we're all trying to do our best in this pandemic, just like everyone else learning what's happening, figuring it out through this mess, trying to do what we can to make life better for ourselves and other people. But, but because of a very small group of scientists now, there's this crisis in public trust. A big part of your book, Viral, is about what we should do now. One of the things that you've discussed is, you've said we need to make pathogen research more transparent and safe. How do we start doing that? 
I think there are many ways to do that. Um, I'd say the, the main challenge is getting buy-in. So many scientists are aware of how to make research more transparent and safe, but they haven't been incentivized to do so. And it requires everyone to, to do it together. So we need the scientists, we need the journal editors, we need our uh, funding agencies to all get together and agree to a set of rules to make research more transparent. For example, could we set up a system where any novel specimen from nature that you suspect might have a pathogen, once you collect it, immediately barcode it, upload that information and whatever sequencing data, just immediately at the time of getting the data, the raw data just goes into international repository where there are ways to build in open access into data, like accountability. But that appears to be exactly the opposite to what China is doing. And you look at the Wuhan Institute, some of the world's leading experts on tracking the SARS virus work there. So if we're going to be more transparent, uh, will it also involve China completely changing its ways? Well, I mean, it involved every country completely changing its ways because that collaboration was with U.S. partners and actually with partners from around the world with, again, seven countries in Southeast Asia and also funding from Europe. We're all in this together. I don't know how else to say it. Like, let's all change together. It's, it's not about holding one country accountable because we're all accountable for this. Another one of your suggestions involves how scientific journals publish results, especially during a pandemic when it's really important to get information out quickly. So one of the things you recommend is what you call fast investigation and correction. How would that work? So right now, the way that scientists publish their papers is that usually they will just send their paper to a journal and the journal will take like X number of weeks or months to peer review. So they invite other experts in your field to come and read your paper privately and give anonymous feedback. And then the editor decides whether or not to publish your paper. So that process is anonymous for some reasons, mainly to prevent retaliation for giving a bad review, but it also has a lot of shortcomings. So in a pandemic, in a crisis like this, it's actually much more helpful if the review process can be open and transparent so people can immediately see what are the problems in this paper. Uh, might the peer reviewer have a conflict of interest? Are they like best friends or the worst enemies with this paper? And that's why they've said these things. So open peer review, I'd say, is very important for studies in a crisis. You know, it's like if, if you see that someone's like mom or dad has peer reviewed their paper, you're like, this is bad. Like, this is, you know, maybe I don't trust this peer review that much. If other scientists find that the work is not reproducible or that there are major flaws in there, then the investigative process by the editors, by other peer reviewers, has to also be open and fast. And the corrections also have to be made fast. Otherwise, in the year or more that you are spending privately investigating the problems, that wrong data or finding could have been perpetuated in the scientific literature. Like It's much more difficult to undo damage than, than to... Than than to just stop it from happening in the first place. Let's talk next about gain of function. This phrase is used to describe medical research that genetically alters an organism such as a virus. Scientists modify a virus to find out how it infects humans. I asked Alina, would it be a good idea to ban gain of function research? I don't think that gain of function research should be banned. So when you ban something, you can sometimes accidentally drive it underground and make it much worse. The best thing to do with these type of things where there are 
you know, irreversible and potentially catastrophic impacts on society is to make it completely transparent. So don't create any incentives for this work to be done in the dark. Like incentivize doing it completely transparently. So when when you do that, when the work is transparent and everyone in society knows what work is being done, that way we can actually hold each other accountable and make sure that the work is done in a safe way. So I'm not saying do this research in every city where there's an international airport, but I'm saying at least have places in the world designated to do this research where scientists can go there and have a great time doing the research, be quarantined for two weeks, very good surveillance and, and testing and tracking, that kind of thing. That would reduce the risk of lab-based outbreaks by orders of magnitude. Instead of having labs located right next to major international airports and scientists coming yeah. and going, right? But you also don't want it to be done underground, right? So you don't want that to be secret labs doing this work. And then because we don't know what they're working on, even when novel pathogens emerge, there's no way to track it. You say we need a pandemic treaty. What do you mean by that? So we are learning so many lessons from this pandemic. And I think these lessons should be used to build a pandemic treaty. So the next time a novel pathogen emerges, whether it's in China or the US or anywhere where there's lab working on these or where there's a very active wildlife trade uh, where animals with these pathogens are being trafficked around, um, we need to have a ground rule that the news of novel pathogens have to be put online ASAP. And when that happens, each country should be able to nominate an investigator to go in there on the ground to see what is happening. So no blocking of these investigations, like no no cover-up allowed, like no chance for cover-up allowed. So why we need to do this is because we've seen how many millions of lives can be lost just, just from the delay in, in getting information about a novel outbreak. It, it means that all the countries that don't know what's happening kind of are left to decide for themselves whether to take more drastic actions or, or to, to hope it goes away by itself. So we saw some countries like Singapore, Taiwan, South Korea, because they had been exposed to the first SARS pandemic, when they heard that there was a novel SARS virus coming out, they were like, not this again. <laughs> they immediately shut down all their travel. They were testing everybody, quarantining like crazy. But the other countries who hadn't been affected by SARS, one, they were like, this is just a Asia thing. And, and then they got hit real bad. Um, we shouldn't be caught off guard again like that. Alina, I admire how cautious, how even-handed, how careful you've been in your remarks. And your work has played a major role in forcing the scientific community to look into the pandemic's origins uh, much more thoroughly. What have you learned in your months of research, uh, sometimes being uh, something of a gadfly in, in, in the community of scientists? So I have to say that actually there are a lot of scientists who've privately reached out to offer support and encouragement for the work I've done. So even virologists have reached out to me and said, don't give up, you're on the right track. We need to know where this virus came from. Let's say this virus came from a lab, right? It's an accident, a complete accident. And, and because of this accident, now there's this whole community of scientists, virologists who feel like their, their whole life, their whole legacy, their identity are being threatened. They feel like the public is demonizing them. And I feel very badly about that. I wish that this wasn't the case. I wish that, that the public could demonstrate the maturity to, to handle, handle information that, okay, 
let's say a lab accident really happened, like what do we need to do here to really prevent that from happening again? It's not about like blaming people, like sending people, firing squad, that kind of thing. Like that, that stuff deters honesty. And so I, I hope that people won't think so badly of scientists. Like no matter what, this was an accident, whether it was in the wildlife trade or, or in a lab. Does science need skeptics like you, people who are willing to be outliers, challenging what might be a premature conventional wisdom? I'd say that there are many people like me, but whether we're given the opportunity to just be heard is a different question. So there's gatekeeping, certainly within uh, scientific journals. Uh, news reporters often have you know, relationships that they've established with top experts over the years. So why would they listen to a postdoc, <laughs> like a total newcomer, right? And I totally get it. I get it. But for emerging issues like this, where even the top experts have gotten so many things wrong, like they've gotten masks wrong, they've gotten whether uh, this transmits from human to human wrong, they've gotten whether it spreads by the air wrong, they've gotten whether vaccines definitely protect against infection wrong. So like just... Just leave some room for, I don't know. As a scientist, you're allowed to tell people, I don't know yet, but we're working on getting that answer. And while you're working on getting that answer, let, let more of these voices saying, I don't know. And these are the questions we need to ask. And this is how we're going to find the answers. That should be the way that we explain things to the public. Not things like, you don't need a mask. <laughs> or, or things like, it doesn't spread through the air. Or just wash your hands. That kind of thing. Like, don't make these assertions for emerging issues. So not everything is climate change where the science is like almost settled. Like everything has to be treated in their own context. Dr. Alina Chen, thank you for joining us on How Do We Fix It? Oh, thanks for having me. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is plush care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. This is How Do We Fix It? I'm Richard Davies. And I'm Jim Meggs. We've been speaking with Alina Chan about her new book, Viral, the search for the origin of COVID-19 that she co-wrote with Matt Ridley. Next, our recommendation and then our conversation. Jim, you have a recommendation that I think is somehow related to this topic. Hot off the presses, Richard. You know, I'm always on the cutting edge of, of literature and everything else. Uh, here's <laughs> a book that's been actually been out for almost 20 years. And it's really surprising that I haven't actually read it because I'm, as you know, I'm really interested in the science and psychology of survival. The book is In the Heart of the Sea, The Tragedy of the Whale Ship Essex. 
by Nathaniel Philbrook to look at the famous incident where a whale ship in, I believe the year was 1820, got attacked by a sperm whale that that crushed part of the hull. The boat sank. It's a really um, an amazing story and quite a famous story. There were several accounts of this written after the incident. Those accounts had a profound influence on a writer and former whaleman, Herman Melville. Ah, Moby Dick. And so this story by Nathaniel Philbrick, who is a really good writer, uh, is uh, another devastating example of a wildlife and human encounter, just like uh, COVID-19 in a way. In a way, you know, and how sometimes disasters take unexpected turns. I mean, did you ever think when the COVID-19 epidemic started, we're coming up on two years ago, come January, did you ever think that we would still be talking about it and doing shows on it two years later? No way. No way. Next up, our conversation. I'm going to start this with a quote, which um, comes from Rachel Carson, the uh, science writer who wrote uh, Silent Spring in the 1960s. And she said, we live in a scientific age, yet we assume that knowledge of science is the prerogative of only a small number of human beings, isolated and priest-like in their laboratories. This is not true. The materials of science, she said, are the materials of life itself. Science is part of the reality of living. It is the way, the how, and the why for everything in our experience. That's really, I think, a great way to frame this. One of the issues that you and I have talked about uh, from fairly early in the pandemic is this sense that it was best to leave a lot of the hard questions to the experts, a sense um, among some of our public health officials and others that they didn't want to give the public too much information. The public couldn't handle too much information. That led them to some somewhat contradictory statements. And it certainly encouraged this, I think, devastating uh, tendency to dismiss the lab leak theory for the first year or so of the pandemic. And not only to dismiss it, but to really denigrate anybody who raised these questions as a conspiracy theorist. We lost a lot of time. We lost a lot of uh, opportunities to learn more about the virus. And that casts a real shadow on our ability to trust some of these uh, these institutions like the National Institutes of Health or the World Health Organization. And yet we need those organizations. We need them to function. We need them to do a better job. And and we can't just say, oh, forget the experts, the way some populists might want to do. That would be disastrous. But the experts need to be more transparent and more accountable. One example of an organization that does do a great job is the National Transportation Safety Board that looks into plane crashes very rigorously, often spends at least a year looking at a serious or fatal plane crash, and then gives a thorough report on their findings. And that remarkable job that the NTSB does on plane crashes has helped make aviation much safer. And so I, w I think that that should be a pointer 
to the kind of investigations that have to be done when uh, viruses escape, even if they escape without fatal consequences. I, I couldn't agree more. And in fact, we need something like a 9-11 commission to look into what went wrong at so many phases uh, of the pandemic. It would be so helpful to have a uh, a really in-depth look at what went wrong and of course, what to do next, but one that really looks in an unflinching way at some of the missteps uh, of some of our leaders in the science community and in uh, in our public health agencies. And it, it doesn't have to mean that we think they're bad people. You know, often there are institutional incentives that lead people to certain kinds of decisions. After the space shuttle Challenger blew up, there was such a strong impulse on the part of everyone to think, well, the NASA officials must have just been incredibly reckless and I never would have made a mistake like that. And they were just pushing the launch no matter what and they ignored the risks. And later investigations showed that well, it wasn't really the case. They thought they were doing their jobs the way they were supposed to, but the incentives that had built up in the organization had actually pushed it in some, some bad direction. We need to find ways to make sure the incentives in the organizations align with the outcomes that we want. Another interesting suggestion beyond uh, a transparency and beyond having an investigation into this pandemic is to put in place an international treaty. Now we have nuclear weapons treaties and agreements. I think we need something similar before the next pandemic. Uh, this international treaty should require a full transparency about viral research that could lead to another global disaster, possibly even worse than the current pandemic. We need to address this in a very serious way. What I like about Elena Chan's suggestions is they're not saying, let's tie the scientists down with a gazillion regulations, although we certainly need some. But they're all, she's also saying more transparency is the main solution. Every piece of virus research should go into databases that are accessible to everyone in order to be able to move quickly and get to the root of an emerging problem. This is How Do We Fix It? I'm Richard Davies. And I'm Jim Meggs. Our producer is Miranda Schaefer, and this show is a production of Davies Content. We make podcasts for companies and nonprofits. As always, thanks for listening. This podcast is part of the Democracy Group. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.